want you to give uh, Pastor Nate a great round of applause as he comes to the stage. Pastor Nate, I had to, we had, we had Bruce here raise the, the platform here. Because some of, some of us are tall physically and some of us are tall spiritually. And uh, Pastor Nate, from the first time that we ever met, uh, this isn't like him preaching in a guest church. It's a uh, home for him. I hope you feel like that. Because every part that we have played here, uh, you have played a major role in. Um, his pastors, Peter and Carolyn, are our pastor, and I, those are our pastors as well. And so, um, Pastor Nate, we are constantly on the phone with each other. He's a great encouragement to me. I'm constantly a great encouragement for him to rest more. Are you getting rested? I threaten murder about once a week. I'm like, I'm going to murder you if you don't get rest this week. He works uh, tirelessly for the Lord, and he's a great friend of mine and a great friend of the church. And God has done something special already. I just can't wait for him to preach. So I'm going to get out of the way. Pastor Nate, come and give us the word of God. Come on. What is up, venue, church? Make some noise wherever you are at. It's an honor to be the presence of God. <laughs> it's an honor to be with uh, people that you love. And uh, you can't do life alone. You, you can't do life in isolation. It's not how God designed it from the very beginning. He so desired to be with his people that he created us and he created us in his image and likeness and desires us to reflect that into this world. Uh, I, uh, I'm so thankful for Pastor Corey and Aaron. I'm so thankful for true authentic friends. I, I think uh, authenticity is uh, fleeting in this world and uh, yet the kingdom of God is about restoring authenticity and restoring the, the true covenant of relationship. And I, I have the privilege of being in relationship with a family that the same people outside of this house as they are in this house. And they uh, uh, are authentic people, people of integrity, character, humility. Uh, those are the top words that come to my mind, and I mean it, uh, and I'm just so thankful for this church, I'm thankful that someone uh, cared for Airdrie, cared to, to start a church, to make room and a place and a space, and the church is it's not this platform, and it's not this LED wall or these lights, it's a group of people coming together and believing that what, what the Lord Jesus spoke about in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. He went on to say that you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And the church is the hope of the world. It's God's plan A. And I just believe that the church in Canada, its best days are ahead of it. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ is alive across this country. I've spoken from... The, the coast to coast in your country. And it's my honor to humble to share. I was just in Kamloops, still don't even know where it is. I was in Kamloops last week. You all have a desert up here. It's amazing. It's speaking in the desert of Canada. No one believes me in America, there's a desert. And so it's out there in the, the wild west of Kamloops. And the church is alive. The church is alive. It's, it's a city on a hill. It cannot easily be hidden nor do... And I love what Jesus goes on to say, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your 
light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And, and, and Pastor Aaron and Pastor Corey, that's what you do. You, you let your light shine and you let it shine through authenticity and you let it shine through vulnerability and you let it shine through taking off the facades and the filters and your children let their light shine and you've raised them up in the ways they should go that they would not soon depart from the Lord. And I just believe that you are a legacy family that it will go to the generations to come. We bless you. We honor you. We thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for tears cried in sleepless nights because you've sown those tears and, and weeping and they've become a sacrifice to the Lord. And it's an offering unto him and he is glorified. And can we honor our pastors today? start my clock and let me pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the gathering of each person in this room that they made it to church today. I think it's the greatest thing in the world that someone would make room and space for you. And I, I just know that, Lord, there's people in this room and they're hurting and there's people in this room that are in joy and there's people in this room that are celebrating and there's people in this room that are in pain. And I, I thank you, Lord, you meet us exactly where we're at you have exactly what we need. You are more than enough and you have provision that no man could ever provide. And so we look to heaven for provision to fall in these moments. And I pray, Lord, that we do not merely hear your words today. Therefore, just deceive ourselves in just hearing something, but we would have an application of your word in our life and we would actually do what it says and we would walk as a church that is a city on a hill. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Such an honor to be here. Thank you so much. I, I'm here on behalf of my pastors, Pastor Peter and Carolyn Haas. They send their love. It's just truly an honor to serve my pastors and uh, get to do life with people that you believe in. I, years ago, God, uh, I, I never had a, this uh, uh, epiphany from heaven or an audible voice from the Lord that I was supposed to do something in ministry, but God did call me to my pastors. He, I remember Pastor Peter was preaching one, one Sunday, and, and the Lord says, hey, that person is authentic and is a man of character, and you're to serve him, and you're to be a facilitator and a contributor in the house of God. He never gave me more. Uh, to the to the, the the direction and instruction for my life, and I'm thankful for the, for that. I, I and it's my greatest honor to serve my pastors, and I, I just believe being planted in the house of God is where you flourish. And I believe that God has flourishing for you. And I believe it happens when there's deep roots that go down into the soil. And this is good soil to put roots down. And some people are, are flaky about this whole church thing. And they're inconsistent. And I just, I'm desperate for God in my life and my kids' lives. And so I want to be planted. And I want to invite you, if you don't hear anything else today, be planted in the house of God. And today I'm excited to share with you, uh, we're going to be looking at a lesson learned in the book of Exodus. Uh, growing up in the church from Sunday school on, I had heard all the stories. We've seen uh, the Prince of Egypt. Maybe if you haven't read the Bible, you've seen the cartoon and the story of uh, God's people in captivity 
in Egypt and they were in slavery for over 400 years. Yet God sends a person named Moses to deliver his chosen people out of Egypt. And uh, we're going to be looking at a section of scripture. And every time I dig into God's word, there is always new insight. The word of God is alive and active. It is speaking. It is multidimensional. It is not just what uh, I saw that first time. I saw it when I was 22. But when I see it when I'm 42, it speaks to me a little different. And I think that that's because our God is infinitely brilliant and he is working truth into our life at the proper time. And so we see in scripture a really interesting story that takes place right after the Red Sea incident. And if you're newer to church in the Old Testament, God wanted to make a nation for himself that would actually, he would use to redeem the whole world. So God sent this man Moses to Pharaoh to demand, let my people go. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh refuses to do this. And so God sends the plagues upon the Egyptian people. And finally, uh, Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery. And we see that he leads them to the Red Sea. God splits open the Red Sea and the Israelites walk across on dry ground, proving once and for all that he is almighty God. And in fact, the exact location that they, uh, that King Solomon believed that the Israelites crossed, there's actually evidence of gilded chariot wheels on the seafloor to this day. And in the context of this scripture matters where the story is taking place that I'm going to read today because it takes place right after the Red Sea miracle took place in scripture. And so if you have your Bibles with me, or if you would love to follow along on the screen, we are going to check out Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. They had just passed the Red Sea. They traveled for three days. There is no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. This is why the place is called Mara. Mara literally means a bitter place. So verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink leader? What are we to drink Moses? You brought us all the way out here and now we are going to die of thirst. And Moses responds in verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> this is the God who just split a whole sea open and he speaks to Moses and shows him a piece of driftwood and tells him to pick it up and he and tells him to throw it into the water so Moses did this. He threw it into the water and the water became sweet. The Lord goes on to say, there the Lord made a decree and a law for the Israelites. And there he tested his people. Verse 26, he said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. 
And then watch what happens next in verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So as we look at this story on the surface, if we take a, a view looking down on what's happening here, we see a simple story where, where God is retraining his people how to trust him. We're talking about people who were just delivered out of 400 years of slavery. It just happened. They just walked across the Red Sea. It just happened. It was not one of these moments in Scripture where it was 100 years have passed, 40 years have passed. Scripture says three days, three days out of slavery, Three days being delivered from captivity, yet the people are already complaining to their pastor saying, what are we going to drink, Pastor Corey? So they're here in Elah. We see the goddess retraining his people. Unfortunately, his people time and time again keep failing the test. And keep in mind, God's goal was not to ever bring his people to a bitter place, but his goal was to bring them to a miracle place, ultimately to the promised land that he had set out before them. But the only reason that they had even called this place Mara was because they did not trust the God who had already delivered them. And in fact, this place that the Israelites showed up at should have been called the sweet place. It should have been called in Hebrew, Yimtaku. In the Hebrew word, the sweet water literally means it's actually a figure of speech for intimacy. It, it, it meant to become tight-knit with someone else. And God wanted them to be bonded with him in the place before he took them to the miracle of Elam where there was provision. He wanted his people to say this, God you shouldn't have done this for me after all that you've already done. And you're going to do another miracle for me. And all of the Israelites had to offer is, Moses, what did you do to us? How dare you take me to a bitter place? How dare you take me to a place of brokenness and bitter water? We see in scripture here, as we lean in one more time, God is doing a miracle and we see this word, then everyone say, then in verse seven, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped out near the water. Now, when in Scripture, anytime we see the numbers like 12 or 7 or 10, there's, there's kind of a, a greater meaning to those numbers. And we see that the number 7 is the number of perfection or the number of completion. The word Sabbath comes from the word for 7. So 70 is basically like a perfect God amount as we see here. And not only was there fresh spring water in Elam, but there were 12 springs. Get, get how God works. One for each of his tribes of Israel. It was, as our God does it, the perfect amount. Once, a, once again, church, I want to say today, I don't believe that God leads us 
to bitter places. Rather, I think he leads us to miracle places. And honestly, as I reflect, Pastor Corey, I, I think many times those places become bitter based on our response to our Heavenly Father. And if we're all honest, raise your hand with me. How many of you have responded incorrectly to the provision of the Lord today? Some of you are not being honest. But <laughs> the front row, I got the front row. Instead of crying out to God, we're stuck just like the Israelites were complaining to our God. Instead of humbling ourselves, we're stuck grumbling towards others. And yet even in those moments, we serve such a grace-filled, faithful, constant God whose mercies were new all over again this morning for each and every one of you. Even in those moments when you are not faithful, He is and He is setting up miracles for your life and provision for your life. Yet we respond saying, God, why did you take me to a bitter place? Instead of humbling ourselves, we're grumbling towards our Creator. And even in those moments, He's faithful. We see in this point of Scripture, the faith of Moses crying out to God, God, what would I do in the moment? You've, you've, you've called me to lead these people. What am I supposed to do? And in faith, He cries out to the One who can bring the miracle. And our God always replies to faith, even if it's the faith of one person. And He says, hey, I know you brought me to Mara, but I believe that you have Elam for me, which is a place of completion. And in this story, I believe it exists in scripture for a reason to demonstrate how are we going to respond when we're living in bitter places the big question today is what do we do in Mara say it another way when we stumble and we fall into bitter seasons church how should we respond and I think the simplest way to, to actually find out how you respond and how you react is, is to ask the questions, what are the bitter things that are in my life right now? What bitter situations do you feel up against? Is it your marriage? Is it your finances? Is it your reputation? Is it your physical body? Is it your job? Is it a circumstance? Is it the, the things that you feel like you can share with no one and let no one into? Is it the thing that would just embarrass you if someone knew? Is it there is no hope for the marriage and you just don't know what to do? In the middle of those bitter places, and we must ask God, the question, Lord, how am I to respond in Mara? When bitter things happen in our nation, do we cry out to a politician or do we cry out like Moses did to his God? When bitter things happen in our lives, do we find ourselves stuck grumbling and complaining and murmuring? Are we humbling ourselves before our creator? Because here's the truth. God is still testing us for promotion. Not because God is cruel. God is loving. He is faithful, but he is testing us because he needs to know, do we have the character to withstand the weight of his type of blessing? 
the blessing of Elam, the provision of the promised land? Do, do we have the character to handle God showing up in bitter places in our life? What a lot of people fail to realize is that every new level of blessing requires a new level of character. God knows that if he was just going, just going to easily just give us everything that we wanted and desired in our life, he is a heavenly father who knows it will destroy us. For many of us, our windfalls can ironically become our downfalls. And that's why over the years I've learned to say, do not pray for promotion, pray for promotability. You see the difference? Don't pray for money. Pray for the stewardship that is worthy of more money. Don't pray for a spouse, you single people. Pray for the character worthy of a spouse. You see the difference. Sometimes we think that that's just semantics, but I think it's the complete difference in having faith in who God is and believing that you're in a bitter place. Because at the end of the day, the question is not, does God want to bless you? Because he longs to bring you to Elam, the place of perfection. In fact, God had a place in mind that was even better than Elam for his people. And as I said, it is the promised land of your life. And I, I think, church, that the promised land that he has for you is you fulfilling the call of God on your life. There is nothing greater than the peace of God, the provision of God, the joy of God, that I can rest in him, that he is taking care of me regardless of the circumstances, and he has purpose for my life. And if there is breath in my lungs, there is purpose in my tomorrow, that he can use me. And my life is created not to be some selfish tool to fulfill my own desires, but is made to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. That is the promised land. That is the promised land. God does want to bless you. God does want to pour out his spirit. In fact, he wants you into the promised land. He desires you to commune with him, to be with him. It's his greatest desire is to be in relationship with his people, but we will never get to the promised land if we are stuck not trusting him in bitter places believing he will turn them into sweet ones there's a fundamental skill that all mature christians need to master do i trust god when the circumstances don't match up to my desires and here's what I've learned happens over time. I've watched God turn so many bitter moments into sweet ones, as Pastor Corey, you shared earlier. I mean, I don't, I don't know in those, those dark days if you imagined the provision of God and the peace of God and the joy of God and your kids loving the house of God and serving the house of God. But listen, church, I have witnessed way too many miracles that take place to not believe God is setting up something beautiful. I've watched too many bitter situations become sweet ones over the years that I've learned that I almost get excited when things get sour. Notice I said almost. And at the very least, instead of wasting time saying, why God, why did you bring me out of captivity to bring me to a place where I'll thirst to death? God, why did you do that miracle and not doing one now? Not even seeing that God just did a miracle in your life. 
He just redeemed you. He just protected you, yet you can't see it. Instead of asking why, I have learned to ask more functional questions like this. Where? Where is the faith solution? Or, or ask a question like this. For what divine purpose are you preparing me for God? Because one thing is for sure, God is always setting up divine purpose with our pain. And even better, when I am in a Mara situation, it usually means that I am so close to Elam. And don't think for a second that our Heavenly Father just has an oasis for you. He has provision that, that, that is matchless. He, I, I promise you, I've met people with so much wealth, so much possessions, and so much knowledge, and so much things, and they just desire a little peace in their life. Peace from a heavenly father. He has so much. In fact, I speak peace over this room where there is restless minds in the name of Jesus. I speak peace over restless situations where it has felt dark and it has felt lonely and it felt like there's no hope. I speak peace and joy purpose that you would rise up in confidence that God is using you to do a good work. He has provision for you, not just Elam. It's a promised land. He desires this. And I, 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 uh, I heard this story. I just had to share it. I said, Pastor Corey, I want to share this story. Uh, and I, I want to unpack it. I, I don't know a lot about these. I think we have a picture here uh, coming up of uh, this guy named Alexander Kerr. And uh, I, some of you people under the ages of 65 in this room, there's these things called mason jars. And they were used a long time ago to uh, preserve food. Now we just use a lot of chemicals to do that. But back Back in the day, they, they had to preserve food. And so uh, this guy, Alexander Kerr, he actually invented the, the, uh, the self-sealing lid. It was kind of an amazing man of God. He was a passionate Christian, and he was so uh, desperate to actually do this startup business that he had to like really work hard to, to raise a lot of money to start his business. He had this invention, yet he had to start a business and he felt so compelled as he was going into the work of fundraising for his business that he needed to start his business outright. And so he committed before he had any money that he would tithe 10% of his income to the Lord as an act of faith. You see, Kerr uh, knew that despite all the things that he could control in his life, there was far more that he could not control. I, I mean, in this time and the country in America, the competition was tough. The American economy was fragile in this moment. And, but he felt by tithing, he was actually making God one of his business partners. Amen. However, in, by 1906, his faith became seriously tested. And some of you might remember in 1906, there was a massive earthquake that destroyed the city of San Francisco. And it just so happened that, that Kerr's glass jar factory for his mason jars was located in the downtown area of San Francisco. So think about this moment, his whole entire life building a business and is wrapped up in glass jars stacked in a warehouse where a once in a century earthquake took place. I cannot think of much worse. 
I mean, in this situation, he happened to be in the Midwest in Chicago and he receives the bad news from his team. His financial advisors called him and they were weeping, saying, we are done for. The company that you built is now in ruins because all of them had invested all of their money to build this glass factory in San Francisco. And when Kerr had received the wire from his team in San Francisco, and this is what they said, 80% of the city is still on fire. And the heat is so intense that it's going to take several days before we can even get in and see what is even left in the city. And check this out. Before, uh, Before even another response or a conversation, this is what Kerr said. God that I serve, the God that I believe in, the God that I have co-labored with and partnered with in my business will not abandon me. God will not go back on his promises in my life. So despite the news, he continued to praise God for a solution. In fact, several of his advisors thought Kerr in Chicago was stuck in denial. In fact, one of Those advisors came to him and said this to him. You are completely insane thinking that God could bail you out of this mess. And he and a few others actually quit the company that week. So not only has he experienced the disaster of a lifetime, his own staff are bailing on him, leaving him alone in isolation. But get this, check this out. A week later, a staff member from San Francisco wired him back and said this, you're never going to believe this, but almost every building in the entire city burned to the ground except a single factory. And guess whose factory that was? It was Alexander Kerr's. And in fact, every single building within a mile and a half radius was burned to the ground except his factory. And what was even crazier is his factory was made completely of wood, not brick. And if that wasn't enough, this was an absolute miracle because the factory that Kerr had was filled with huge tanks of oil to melt glass. I mean, it was probably the most flammable building in the entire city of San Francisco. Yet when the flames got to the fences, eyewitnesses said they literally jumped over the building and even crazier, despite the violent earthquake, get this church, not a single jar of thousands of stacked jars fell to the ground and broke. That's the God we serve. The God, when you partner with him in your marriage, when you partner with him in your business, in your life, in your sexuality, in your identity, in your pertinences, I say, God, I'm co-laboring with you. And where you go, I go with you. If you tell me to throw a stick in the water and that will turn into bitter to sweet, as weird as that is, I'm trusting you in faith that you will do it. God shows up and does the miraculous and it does not stop at God just showing up for you. Look what Alexander Kerr does with the rest of his life. He begins to tour across the country. He was known for saying, seek first the kingdom of God through your finances, through tithes and offerings. Get involved in the church and God will take care of you. Listen, church, it all takes one person to exercise their faith. And I promise you the God of miracles will show up for your life, but it's not just for you. It's for other people. Even in the bitter moments, church, let's learn to flex 
our faith muscle. And we see here in Scripture a promise that I love to meditate on. I love to give this to you today. Psalms 145, 8-9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. He has created you with purpose. He has destined you for promise. And if we could just allow the truths like this to sink into our soul, I believe today, whatever your bitter situation is, God is turning it into a miracle situation. Whatever your broken pain is, God is leading you to a promised land. Would you have even an ounce of faith today, venue church, to believe God is delivering people in in the Airdrie, in the surrounding areas? God is bringing people of brokenness and addiction and shame, and he is rescuing them. And he is looking to you to be a Moses. He is looking to you to be an Alexander Kerr. Say, I will stand in faith, believing God will do the impossible. I've seen it before. I'll see it again. This is what the copes have been proclaiming in this city. I've seen it before. I'll see it again. God has a promised place for each and every one of us. As I finish up today, uh, my pastor, Pastor Peter, he's, uh, over the years I've learned he's just kind of a complete church history nerd. I'm, every time I sit down with him, he's like, Nate, I, I, I read a new story about church history and the impact of a person. And when they like, came into agreement with God, here's what took place. And, and so he was sharing this story with me. It took place back in the 1700s in England. And there was this movement called the Methodist movement started by John Wesley. Many of you have heard of the Methodist movement. And keep in mind in those days, dignified people in English society and British culture, they would all attend the church of England, the Anglican church. Most people saw Methodists as kind of spooky emotionalism churches. Very funny. Uh, Methodists did contemporary worship. Did you know that the Methodist movement was actually responsible for contemporary worship? In fact, the auditorium even being shaped like this was started by Methodism. Before that was long, narrow, kind of the classic Church of England Catholic hallways where you would look up at a a priest. And so they, they started engaged worship. The first movement to start Sunday schools. And they were known to be the movement to actually uh, break down deep intellectual things and be able to speak to the common person. And it, it was very rare for a wealthy person or a politically elite person to even affiliate with the Methodists. However, there, there was this one wealthy woman who was just not afraid of other people. And she was a spitfire by the name of Lady Huntington. And if you kind of have ever seen the the show Downton Abbey, uh, I don't watch that show, but if you've ever seen it, the Dowager Countess is kind of the idea of this elite woman, Lady Huntington. She was a super wealthy aristocrat. She was friends with royalty and famous actors and influencers of the day. Yet it just so happened that she was a passionate believer in Jesus Christ. She was not afraid to speak her mind or risk her reputation. In fact, she was actually known to happily enjoy a a good dip of chewing tobacco, which was not very ladylike back in those days, nor is it today. But despite her amazing wealth, she ended up doing, going through some very difficult things in her life. When she was 39 years old, her husband and the love of her life died suddenly from a stroke. If that wasn't enough, she was now parenting four little kids. And to make matters worse, after her 
her husband passed away. Her two uh, of her sons tragically died from smallpox. In those days, losing a a son or a husband could be complete economic ruin, but to lose two sons and a husband all at once was completely life-altering. And if you can imagine being a single mom taking care of the kids you have left after experiencing loss, it was a complete nightmare. Yet instead of growing distant from God and saying, God, why did you bring me to this bitter place? She drawed closer into his presence like never before, having faith that God can do the impossible. In fact, she was known to believe that the, the earthly success and opportunities were meaningless and that God had a clear, greater pers- purpose for her life. And all of a sudden, in that dark, low moment in Mara, she had a crazy idea on how to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just so happened that there was this young, up-and-coming preacher by the name of George Whitfield. He was an old preacher friend who had captured people's hearts with his preaching. And so she went to her friend and said, George, if I threw a party and brought all my aristocrat friends and all these famous people, would you come preach to them? And and he was like, well, what what are you going to do at this party? He's like, well, I'm just going to get influential people from parliament, lords and ladies and famous writers and actors and all these people. And we're going to trick them into letting you preach to them. And she said, what if I invited him and you preached to him? And he said, I'll do it, but I'm not going to hold anything back. And she didn't care. And she said, go for it. And so he ended up throwing this massive party in England for all of these wealthy people. And, and uh, the Prince of Wales ended up showing up along with the half-sister of the king. And they were so mesmerized and moved by the sermon and moved by the, the, the preaching on sin. And that God had more for their life. And, and so as they became overwhelmed, they, became, they began to demand that Lady Huntington throw another party. And so as the momentum grew, in fact, it was known that uh, and, and a lot of historians actually credit this moment and this party of why a lot of the educated elite in England ended up flooding into the model of church of Methodism. And as success began to build and reputation began to build for Whitfield and and, and for Lady Huntington, just like you can expect in those great moments, the devil started cranking up opposition. How many have been there when you're experiencing a move of God in your life and you're experiencing provision of God? The enemy loves to show up in those moments late at night and say, you're worthless. There's no purpose for your life. Your marriage will not be restored. Your lost son and daughter will not come home. And so the enemy began to crank up opposition. In fact, people would actually literally show up to protest against the preaching of Whitfield because he would actually talk about sin. People started showing up and they would throw rocks and dirt and eggs at him as he was preaching. In fact, two men had plotted to show up at Whitfield's house in the middle of the night to kill him. And Lady Huntington started going through more hardships in her life. Her youngest son, who was 15, ended up being struck with blindness and three years later passed away. I mean, if you looked at Lady Huntington's life through an earthly filter and all the pain that she had experienced up to that point, it's pretty depressing. Because I mean, 
She ended up bearing five of her own seven children, the tragic circumstances. Yet neither Whitfield nor Lady Huntington were about to back away from the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, when the going got tough, they decided to double down and go all in. Lady Huntington, Lady Huntington had her heart set on building the church of the future. She kept thinking, what if we constructed churches that were actually attractional to people who don't go to church? In those days, churches had zero creature comforts. They had no restrooms. There was no Sunday school spaces or ministry for anybody that was not an adult. Yet she was one of the first to start saying, what if we actually cared about people's practical needs at the church? And so she started these really innovative church building models. And not surprisingly, she got attacked for this work. In fact, she was attacked by Christians. Christians would come to her and say, why are you building all these extravagant buildings? That money could be used for the poor. But she was known for saying, for one decent church we build, there's a hundred ministries that will launch to reach the poor. Besides, what good is a ministry if half the churches across England are terrible and hostile to outsiders? As if that has stopped being the church in many cities. We are so good at being homogenous with our own Christian friends in a country club, with people that we feel comfortable with. At the moment that an outsider walks in and needs hope and freedom and purpose, we get disgusted. We see in this moment a woman with desperate faith, believing that God can do the impossible, became a woman, became the general contractor for the Methodist church, building churches all over England. In the meantime, she started sending her friend George Whitfield out to the American colonies because there was a bigger desire in, for Christianity in the colonies at that time. In fact, Whitfield had preached so many sermons in the 13 colonies that one historian argued four out of five colonists had experienced one of Whitfield's sermons before he died. And get this. By the time Lady Huntington died, she had overseen over 116 Methodist church buildings, all herself as general contractor. In fact, Whitfield was so impressed by Lady Huntington's management skills that when he died, he left his money to her. I mean, he knew that the greatest investment on earth was not in some random man, but in a woman. And that woman was Lady Huntington. And by the time they both had died, get this church, their ministry partnership resulted in over 10 million people giving their lives to Jesus Christ. I've shared here before about the historic Wesley building that God miraculously provided for our church. It was built in 1896, and that building would not exist if it wasn't for a dynamic single mom named Lady Huntington. We're talking about a woman who had international celebrity, a woman who would launch ministers to do work around the world, a woman who understood that God could take bitter situations and make them sweet. Because at the end of the day, it's not your circumstances, church, it's your faith. And I just believe that God is setting up miracles for each and every one of us today. With every head bowed and every eye closed as I finish today, what is your Mara right now? Church, are you complaining or crying out? 
Do you believe that God can bring you to a place of completion? We see in Psalm 84, 6, let me read this over you. When they walk through the valley of weeping, it will become a place of refreshing springs. The autumn rains will clothe it with blessing. I just believe today that God is taking your bitter situations as you surrender to him and he's turning them into provision situations. I believe that God is setting up miracles right now and he is drawing all young men and women and old men and women and every single person right now unto himself. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and I will give you rest. The type of rest our Father gives is not some circumstantial momentary sleep. It is peace that surpasses all understanding. It is insight for living. It is joy that is unspeakable and it is full of his glory. It is purpose that is greater than anything that you feel up against. And so church, I pray over you right now. If you need to just simply receive God again in this morning saying, God, I have not trusted you in my bitter place, but I want to receive the miracle. Would you just with your hand out in front of you say, God, I receive you again. I receive your provision. And I act in faith, believing that you are God, that you can do the impossible. I believe that you can show up in even the most dire situations and turn it around for your good. And I receive you, Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. If you're in this room today, you know that God has a great plan for your life, but your circumstances seem so difficult and you simply want to release to the plan of God and the provision of God. I want to invite you as we finish today, just with hand up, I'm all in God. Whatever you want to do with my life, bold hand up, I'm all in. Use me, God. I know I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will fear no evil. You are with me. You guide and you comfort me. Right now, in Jesus' name, as I finish, I pray over this this room. It's been the theme for me all morning. Marriages restored in Airdrie in Jesus' name. Orphaned kids finding a place today in Jesus' name. Our identity in Christ Jesus in Jesus' name. Right now, families coming back together and being restored. Lord, I believe that you're turning bitter situations into miracles, miracle situations into places of completion, and you're drawing us into your promised land. So we all corporately submit to your work today again. Would you pour out your spirit in our day? And that young, that in this moment, God, those who feel so far from you would actually experience you. You are our heavenly father. You are not an ideology or a philosophy. You're an ever present savior, caring deeply about our needs and desires. And so you meet us right here. I pray for a holy and tangible encounter with your Holy Spirit that transforms us on this Sunday. That it's not just another Sunday where we showed up at church and then we left the same, but it would be transformational as we worship you because it is all about you, Jesus Christ. Would you join me and stand as we worship the name Jesus today?